Tonight I'm going to do it on something that I found very interesting. And sometimes when you run into something, you start doing a deep dive into scriptures to see if you can see if it's well-based. So one of our college kids sent me this little video of this man from South Africa explaining this concept. And I wondered, I thought, is, is this true? I mean, could he be right about this? And he was talking about divine restraining orders. Anyway, the testimony was that he has a church. It's very multiracial. And so he was saying, this is one of his Caucasian members that this happened to. He said her eyes were bloodshot. He said that she was breaking down, crying in front of him. And the music had already started playing in the church, so it was time for him to go preach. And if anybody's ever under the pressure of speaking, you know what it feels like when someone needs ministry and you're about to talk. So she said, I've cried my whole night through. And she said, I used to have a good marriage, but my husband cheated on me. And he cheated on me in my own bedroom with a woman that was half his age. And she said, it was just a devastation. And then he ran off with the woman. And she said, it was about recovering from the trauma. But she says, we have two children together. But the bad part is, every time he comes to pick up the children so he can spend time with them, he brings the little floozy along with him. And so that lady always has tormenting things to say to her. You know, she has those little snide comments. She said, it's just like he's flaunting it in my face. And then sometimes the guy would be just verbally abusive to her. She said, what made it so hard it was in front of the girl that had destroyed her marriage. And so she was just like saying, I'm a child of God. And the words that caught my attention with this man telling this story was, she said, I'm a child of God and I'm being treated like trash. And she just felt like something was wrong with it. And I don't know if y'all have ever had that happen in your life where you just get under the heel of the boot of someone. You get caught in a trap. You just feel like nothing you do is going to work out. Like you're just being stepped on. And I don't know, but I've had dealings in life where sometimes I just, I get in a situation and there just doesn't seem to be any way to exit it. And so she said, you know, I just, I'm not trash. God, would you help me? And he said the Holy Spirit whispered to him something just at that moment and told him, put a divine restraining order on this situation. I'd never even heard of such a thing. So of course she immediately thinks that he's meaning in the natural. He said, name what you want. What do you want in your restraining order? And she said, I want him to quit insulting me. I want him to stop coming to collect the children and bringing this woman every time he does, like who broke my heart, broke our marriage. And she said, thirdly, there's the problem that the kids keep begging me to go see my parents. And he says, if you take those kids out of the state to see your parents, he said, I'm going to go to Phoenix myself and press kidnapping charges if you move the kids out of state. And so she said, my kids can't even see the grandparents. So she put that in there as the, her request. So this pastor went before the courts of heaven. They prayed to God, the judge of all situations, and they said, would you put a restraining order on this man in these areas? And they named the three things. The most remarkable part of this story was in 48 hours, the man calls her and he's crying. And he can't quit crying, but it was like he was seized with guilt. And he goes, I don't know why I've treated you so miserably. You don't deserve it. He said, you didn't break the covenant. I did it. And he said, I did this. 
And he goes, I want to make amends with you. And she said he listed it off. He said, here's what I'm going to do. And I promise you, when I come to take the children from now on, I'm not going to bring her with me. And he said, I've already told her she's not coming. And he said these words I thought was interesting. I don't need to make my ex relive the affair over and over every time. Then he said, number two, I'm sorry for being verbally abusive to you. And I'll never do it to you again. And three, he said, you've been wanting to take the kids out of state. You have my permission. You can take them. And in 48 hours, it was solved. You know, I don't have much time to listen to videos people send me, and I stay pretty busy, so I don't get a chance to watch something. But this one captured my attention. And he went on, and he was telling story after story of divine restraining orders and how they're used. And the first thing that I would say is it is true. The Bible has a lot of language that talks about the courtroom. There's a lot of verses that refer to a judicial system set up in heaven that is similar, like we've patterned after it in earth. And you can guess who the defense attorney is, and you can guess who the accuser of the brethren is, and you can see what goes on before the judgment seat of God. And there's only one thing that protects us from our sins being used against us. You know what that is. There's one payment already made for it, the blood. After this, all his testimonies were catching my attention about these divine restraining orders. What most held my attention was the fact that she said, I just can't take it anymore. I'm a child of God, and I shouldn't be treated like trash. And I thought, you know, so many times different people or different times in our life, we start feeling ourselves be just treated rawly. We just are treated in a way that's not respectful. And we start losing respect for ourselves. And when this happens, most of the time we just absorb it in. We take in the hurt. We take in the abuse. We start just feeling bad about ourselves. But I thought it was interesting this lady actually did something about it. And when something stood up inside of her and said... I'm a child of God, then the Holy Spirit moved on her behalf and gave him a plan for her. It's very unusual, his story of where he came up with these ideas, and, but I thought, let's look into it. And so the heavenly authority gives you dominion over people and situations. That's what authority does. And it's meant to be a good thing. It's something that God gave us that he put man in dominion. And spiritual authority can supersede civil authority, which I find very unusual. Because we have a very strong set of civil authority, especially in America. You know, we're pleased with the freedom we have, and we cherish those, and they're meaningful to us. But a lot of times we don't think in terms of God having spiritual authority that really is over the civil authority. It is such a thing, and... When something bad goes wrong in your life, there's promises in the Bible, a lot of promises for your life. But have you ever noticed that Satan sometimes seems to have legal authority over you, or if you want to call it illegal authority over you? What opens the door to Satan being able to do something to you, like where you are a child of God, you have covenant rights and promises, but it's like the enemy comes in and he starts just trying to take you out even take you out to yourself. 
I started thinking in terms of this, and this is what was going through my mind when we did our Sunday school lesson. And this is the other piece of the puzzle that I want to share with you tonight, because I wanted to work you all over really well in Sunday school to see where we landed first before I went into this. But where I would start this concept is with the bridling of animals. And I'm going to give you a verse in Psalm 32, 9. And I love thinking about this verse. And it says, Do not be as the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle. And they restrain the animal to hold him in check. Otherwise, the horse won't come to you. It's interesting to think in terms of a bridle will make an animal come to you. Now, it's not their will. It's the bit and the bridle. And I want to ask you, because this is talking about something about you and God. Does it take a bit and a bridle for you to come to God? Does it take something where it has to make you come? Because having a bridle on you is the beginning of selling out to the Lord. Having something where it has a handle on your life. You know, if you've ever watched a dog that's been trained well, or a horse that's trained well. And I cannot forget this great testimony I heard of this horse that was a pressure animal and how you can work them out of their fear and how you can work the pressure. When you see something like that demonstrated in front of you, not just a mere illustration, but to actually watch it happen, it's beautiful, isn't it? To literally watch the training and the communication and the relationship between the animal and the trainer. And it's beautiful to behold. And that's what I would say that our life looks like if we do it with God, if we're well-trained by God. That's the purpose of what's behind it. Matthew 8 captures the man who was a Roman centurion, and he says the same thing about authority. And he says, I'm both a man in authority and I'm a man under authority. And he was actually the one telling the parable to Jesus. And he recognized Jesus' authority because he was a man of authority. You know, men recognize respect with each other. They recognize authority. And that's what this guy did, except that he realized, I have a natural authority, where this guy has a spiritual authority. And so he was talking about, I tell a man, do this, and he said, the man does it. I tell a soldier, go here, and he said, the guy goes. And so he recognized that Jesus actually could command a sickness and it would leave. It would go. And so he was recognizing the authority on Jesus' life. And he told him, you don't even have to bother to come to my home. He said, you can just speak and something will obey you in several villages from here. Now, that's a unique place to get into with your life with the Lord if your words carry that kind of authority. Not only in earth, that you have where people respect you, but that also in the heavenly realms where you carry authority. And what I didn't realize is the restraining order has something to do with your authority. As I begin to study this, it's interesting how they're tying this restraining order into your authority. So, As you think of yourself as a man in authority, you'll recognize the authority of Christ. 
And that's what people marveled at. They said, wow, when this guy teaches, he teaches different than our other pastors, our other scribes. He teaches different than anyone because he's a man that speaks with authority. And there's a lot of people, and they speak, but they don't have authority behind it. You don't feel like heaven's backing up what they're saying. And so it's a recognition of not just having a Christian education, but to actually pick up on the authority that's being offered to you. Well, when we think of terms like dogs and horses and men and people obeying, one thing that's really pleasant to watch is a child that can take a no. Now, I know that for the most part they're extinct, but uh, (laughs) in a theory, in old days, a child could take a no. Now, that was before you went to Walmart and there was that aisle that right before you checked out you know that that's the aisle that tests every child you know when they reach in and if you tell them no you'll see a different side to your child and what's unique about a child is realizing that you have to get your child to understand the importance of the word no and to obey there's some children that have never ever taken a no like the parents are just very careful with that child and and make sure they never cross the child They never tell the child no, and that's a certain style of parenting, and you can watch it. You know, sometimes I've inherited it in college ministry after someone raised their kid that way. Or you can have a child that has a handle on them and that they've learned to respect the no, and they understand why the no is good for them. And that's the moment of what I call maturity. Because it's very unique to have a kid going, I'm really mad about all my parents tell me to do, and they start their freshman year, and they're going over everything that told no on. But then they hit a certain point, and they start understanding why the no. And once that person becomes a parent, then they call their parent back and say, I am so sorry. Now I understand. (laughs) And a lot of times you have to do it by pure experience. But sometimes in your maturity, and it's very unique to watch from 18 to 24, right in those years, that you start maturing and you think, oh, I respect the no. I understand why they're telling me no. And when you start getting the why behind the no, then you start actually maturing. You know, I've also listened to pastors. And it's unique to have a pastor who has the strength to say no that he can get up and he doesn't have to be one of those people that just comforts everybody and makes them feel good and I call it uses a lot of bait. He never quite gets down to the cross and what's expected of us, but they put a lot of bait out trying to keep everybody happy. But there's a strength to know where you both preach mercy and truth, where you preach love and you preach the ability not only to say no, But the ability for people to have respect and to have a restraint in their Christianity. Now, you'll find I'm not one that takes someone and I hand them a long set of rules and say, this is what the gospel's about, it's all these restrictions. It's not. This has nothing to do with restrictions. This has nothing to do with the list to make you good or bad. What this is, is the relationship that you have between God and God. And yourself. It's not restrictions. It's getting to knowing. It's a partnership. It's a connection of understanding of what God in a way of um, maturing and respecting why he tells you no. You know, 
I've had to make a new rule to myself. After all the years of hiring people, I've had to say, I'm never again hiring an employee I can't say no to. Because you can sometimes get afraid of someone. And thank the Lord, our team has gotten to where we're able to have conflict and really grow from it, to really learn from it. But you can get in a situation where you have an employee that you're scared of. All these things have to do with your strengths. So these are individual cases, but also there's going to come an ideal of restraint on the end times. And if you want to find a doctrine that has so many different theories of what it means, it would be the scripture in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7. And it calls it a mystery. And it says there's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. Would you agree that there's a lawlessness in our society? (laughs) Just keep up with the murder rate. Timothy said in the end that parents and children are not going to be getting along. It's just going to be a complete fallout. So he says that there's going to be a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. Well, if it was at work 2,000 years ago, it's kind of improved since then, the lawlessness. But listen to these words. But the one who restrains it will continue to do so until he's gone. Now, if you get the privilege of being the one who restrains lawlessness, it is an art form. Yeah. There's only so many ways to restrain it. I mean, there's physical restraint, guns. You know, there's only so many things you can do against people trying to just push their evil over the top of you. But you've got to find your way to restrain evil. You've got to find your way to restrain lawlessness. And there's authority that we have through the power of the name of Jesus. There's civil authority. There's different ways to, and I'm going to use a different word for it, it's crime. And it said what happens with lawlessness, it starts working on you. I know that I volunteered in the prison here since I was 17 years of age. And what you find in prison work, cynicism. It starts killing the hope in you. And that's what Jesus said, that after enough time with it, your love will grow cold. I mean, no more is it where my grandpappy would hitchhike where he had to go. You know, no more do you feel like you have the courage to pick up somebody on the side of the road. The Lord's telling you to pick them up. Lawlessness has grown to the point that love is growing cold. I live in a small town, but where I live, it's so small that when we pass each other on the road, we say howdy. We say hello to each other just seeing each other in the country. We don't know each other. But if you ever have someone from up north, they're like, This is amazing how y'all are. And there's just something about country respect. And I think we're trying to hold on to that fabric of saying that's what makes us great as Americans, that we believe deep down that we want to do good. But there's a work of lawlessness that's trying to destroy that. And with this restraint on evil, as you see it in Thessalonians, who has the power to stop it? Who is this thing that Paul is talking about that restrains lawlessness? You also see governmental restraint. And people love to quote the first verse, but I really like to look at Romans 13, verse 3. Because this is my definition of government, verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. That's God's definition of government. If you have good behavior... Officials, people with authority, they should cause you no fear because you're on the right side of the law. 
My dad never, ever taught me to fear cops. He never told me, hey, you should be afraid. In fact, it's unique to see that my mom wrote a book on protection for the law enforcement. And so I'm even being asked today to go into a country that's corrupt and put our Psalm 91 book into the law enforcement. I went into Juarez when it was a very hot place. We put 300,000 books in, and I spoke in eight precincts of the law enforcement in Warriors. Because government was made to protect the good. And then Paul goes on to say, you don't want to have no fear of authority. He said, because part of authority is you need to fear it. Because he said, do what is good and you will have praise from your officials. For it is a servant of God to you for good. So government is a servant to God. So that means government should obey God. And when government obeys God, then we obey government. Because you don't want a government apart from God. And those kind of governments have risen up, and they brought a lot of lawlessness across the land. But God has created government as his servant. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. You need to be. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Yeah, I got tickled in Israel that they were making fun of us in Texas for how we not only all carry guns, but the fact that uh, we believe in the death penalty. And I was like, hey, I think it comes out of your part of the Bible that talks about stoning people. I mean, I thought that it was y'all who came up with this idea. I mean... This is what this is saying here, that it bears a sword for good reason. If you kill, you'll be killed back. You know, you may have killed inhumanely, but our laws will make it where you're killed in the most humane way that we can find. But it will avenge a death, and that's called justice. So we're seeing here that there's restraint. There's restraint on evil, and government's purpose is to restrain evil. And that's why Paul says, pray for them because they've got a hard job, because they see all the bad. And that's why he says, if you'll pray for him, you'll live in peace. You know, I watched a cop go down my alley over here by herself, and I just started praying for her, because I wouldn't want to walk down an alley with the light on me showing them where I am. And so that's the purpose, to bless, to pray. So government has a restraint on lawlessness, and God has a restraint on government to please him, to be a servant. So you're finding built-in restraints. And if we mature, then we start seeing, oh, it's good for us. We're not the little kid that goes, I don't want any rules. So good has built-in restraints, and authority comes with restraints. So as I looked a little bit more into this um, ideal of the restraining order, this is how he worded it. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no way to give anyone authority without putting them under a restraining principle. So as we introduce the ideal of authority and say, wow, most Christians are not being taught their authority. At the same time, I'm bringing up the ideal that with authority comes with restraints. He goes on to say, it is impossible for authority to exist on the earth regardless if it is supernatural authority or human authority, without a restraining principle. Now, what does that mean? What are we meaning here? Okay, I'm going to put it in simple language. Let's put it in ways that in Texas we can understand it. 
God has to have a bridle on you. And God has to know that we can be told no in an area for him to be able to trust us. So right now, I want you to think about how God feels about you. Does he feel about you like, uh, wow, that dog is better trained than <laughs> my servant over here. That horse acts with better wisdom and maturity. Or does God say, wow, there's trust that's built between us. I am allowed to tell you no, and you receive it. Now, I want y'all to even fathom what I'm about to say. This is almost more than your mind can comprehend to say this. But God himself has restraints. Now, I've heard a case argue that God's without restraints. But the kind of God that we have that is a good God, the God that we know, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, he gives us a restraining principle even on himself. I want to see if you agree with this. So I'm going to point out some restraining principles. One way that God restrains himself is he gave man, his creation, free will, and he gave us a choice. And he doesn't violate it. You know, to my knowledge, I've known of people that have abused someone, children even, like in a bad way. But they're not struck down with a heart attack in the middle of it. God didn't slap the apple out of Eve's hand. The best thing about it is we're given choice. The worst thing about it is we're given choice. When you start fearing your free choice, you're like, you're beginning to understand God. And that he created this divine experiment to see if we would love him out of relationship and not out of control. You know, Satan is the God of control. When I see control, I say, that's the government of Satan. He controls. But God, he has authority, and it's beautiful. You know, I was really blessed because my dad, he was a very strong man. No one pushed him around. But he never was selfish. And in his strength, I saw such firm authority. It gave me security. And I never feared men because of the strength of my dad. He was not a controller. So when someone would say the word of submitting to authority, I liked the idea because I saw it as another layer of protection. And I started wrestling with his nose to understand why would my dad tell me no. I was doubly blessed because he could hear God real well. So in the natural, when a man gets afraid, if he can override his fear with the ability to hear, it's a true man because then he has authority both on the earth as a protector, but also in the heavenlies to be able to hear God. When Dad let me do something in my 20s that everyone was telling him, don't do it, don't do it, she'll be killed. Dad got on his knees and the Lord said, let her go. It'll go well. And it's my testimony book to this day because of what my dad had the faith and the courage to do. That's why people of authority need prayer. It's a lot of responsibility on you. So we're talking about God himself as our example of restraint. Another restraining thing of God is he doesn't lie. In fact, it's so in the word. When he talks about his promises, he said you can count on them. You can take them to the bank because he cannot lie. And when he had to swear, it said he had no one he could swear by because there was no one greater than himself. 
So he swore by his own name. God restrained himself. One time I had a huge problem, if you can imagine. And I was outside and I was pleading my case before the Lord. And this is what we used to call courtroom praying was pleading your case. And I was pouring my heart out to the Lord. And I was like, it started a miracle and it's ending in a disaster. Why would you do this for me? And then it wipe out and be terrible. It was real similar to some of those women in the Old Testament as they were pleading their case. And finally, in the midst of a desperation where I had poured my heart out to the Lord, of just saying, it's disastrous what has taken place. I appealed to heaven and I said, Lord, would you swear to me based on your own name that you will deliver this situation? And in one year you would never believe the difference in the situation. And it was disastrous. But it's the way that God has made it, that he doesn't lie. If you look at it, Jesus said the same thing of, God didn't work like the mafia. He doesn't do this thing of, well, I'm not going to do it, but Steph will knock you off. Like, I don't like you, and I'm going to keep my hands clean, but watch during the night. (laughs) She has a hair trigger. Now, would that get me innocent in a court? But yet we see God that same way. We think he uses Satan to do the dirty work. But God is all-powerful. And Jesus said it very clearly. He says, Satan doesn't cast out Satan. And he says, a house divided will fall. A kingdom that is working in collaboration with evil will not stand. And God says, on the basis of the goodness of God... God has chosen to only work on the basis of goodness and mercy in your life. That's a very unique restraint. My mom once said it so well. We didn't get a pick who God was. He could have been terrible. It's amazing to think that your God loved you so much that he sent his son after what we've done, that his love is so compelling that his way of doing things is to give in order to receive back our love. So we have different things with God, that he doesn't lie, that he doesn't use evil, that he gives us free choice, and that God doesn't change. To know that God is not temperamental, he's not moody, he's not unpredictable, unstable, unreliable. I like this word, capricious. You're not dealing with that with the Lord. You're dealing with strength. So we're going to find out that God himself has demonstrated restraint to us, and he restrains himself from evil, and then he passes it on to us. Listen to this one. When Jesus came, he demonstrated this too, restraint. Because the restraining principle, when it's broken, it's a loss of authority. Let me read you these words in John 5, verse 19. Then Jesus answered, and he said to him. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does it in a like manner. Let me give you the New American Standard. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in the same way. The restraining principle that Jesus was under was that he could only do what he saw the Father doing. He only duplicated 
God himself. What is God like? Look at Jesus in your Bible. That's the best theology. Jesus interprets God. He's the exact representation. So there was no healing or deliverance or display of power that was done without seeing the Father do it first. And in doing so, Jesus was able to restrain evil. He was able to stop storms, that even the wind obeyed him. So the restraint of heaven works on that word that we have come to so love, agreement. Jesus didn't make a move without agreement. Jesus' restraints of using his authority were until he achieved agreement with God. And that's where you see Jesus going about doing good, healing all those who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Unique. It's unique for us to first say that how we can come to terms with having personal restraints is to understand our God himself limited himself to goodness, to truth, to things that he requires out of us. Well, this leads up to what I promised that I would tell you on Sunday was one of my crossliners was standing right at the door and he was leaving. And it was one of those questions I've always had about the Bible. Like, I just wondered about it. Like, I, I asked y'all in the group, I liked hearing your answers. But in less than 60 seconds, he explained to me that the reason that God has to have a restraint on man. So we're going to look at this for a second in Scripture. And then it cleared up the big question I had. So God can never use a man or a woman that he cannot restrain. I've seen kids that you teach them authority, but they don't have any maturity. Mm, Some of the disasters. But most of the time it just doesn't work. That they're just all over the place. But they've never found the discipline of restraint. They've never gone there in their relationship with God. You know, this is where I would tell you with your heart to invite God, say, I give you permission to tell me no because I trust you and I know you're good and you have my best interest in mind and you're helping me to do your will. So divine restraint shows true, legitimate, God-given sonship and authority over us. But the other type of person is God can't tell them no on anything. That's why these pastors have to just give them bait, because if they should ever hear a sermon that ever gave them any kind of a restraint, they just fall apart. So I want you to think in terms of this man as um, God putting restraint on him. And some people have this happen to them that at the very moment of your calling, it's given your restraint at the same time. That's how I had written it once years before. I got into the notes today. But at the moment God calls you, he tells you the restraint he wants on your life. So let me read this verse. And the angel of the Lord appeared to a woman, and he said to her, Behold, you are barren. You have no children. Okay. But you shall become pregnant, and you will bear a son. Therefore, beware, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall become pregnant and bear a son. So notice the restrictions she had. Don't drink. Don't eat anything unclean. But listen to his restriction. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to me from birth, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
So do you see with this that he's given a restraint at the same time he's given his calling? It's an interesting calling on your life if God said to you, your job is you're going to begin to deliver Brownwood. (laughs) Or you're going to begin to deliver this group of people. So this is where it goes from there. Something I had not understood was why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ever put into the garden? And this took it to a greater dimension. I'd always wondered it. And suddenly when I heard Samson, I understood this. Yes, I'd called it forbidden areas, wondering if I could have a forbidden area with God. But when you think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we've talked about the fact it's not just the tree of the knowledge of evil, but good and evil, that first of all, it gives you an authentic choice. And I appreciate Corin bringing that to the table, that it lets us say we're either going to obey or not obey. And how on earth can we say we truly have a choice if there's no choice, if there's not an alternative option? If there's no real choice, if there's no evil, it's not a real choice. And then I liked how John, he took what he said, and he said, really, the fence laws is causing us to have less choice. So we went into a a lot of different areas there. But when I started thinking about restraining orders, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not only a choice, but it's God's way over all of mankind to have one restraint. Just one thing that he put with us. He gave us thousands upon thousands upon thousands of varieties of trees. I had never looked at it this way, but I'd always thought of it as, well, here's this tree that's bad, and here's the good one, and you're just thinking there's two choices. But one day I was looking at our ranch, and I looked across the expanse, and I thought that's what the garden was like. It was hundreds and hundreds of good trees and just one tree not to eat of. And so for the most part, Adam and Eve didn't even see the tree. I mean, there were so many varieties of fruit, just different ways that God had made trees. You know, when you think of trees, he has variety. And that's what he had done to us, is he had given us so much to see. And it gave me another perspective on this, that really it was a small thing to ask, just that one tree, compared to how much goodness he had put in the garden. You know, in the garden, the two trees that bear great consequence, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And so that's how I'd seen it, just those two. But in truth, they could eat of any tree in the garden but that one. Why do we get mad at God over one slight response when we did nothing to deserve all the good we do get. I mean, our life is blessed with so much variety and so much blessing, and we begrudge God one thing. So which the latter they were told not to eat, and if they did, they would surely die. So this question is present. If God did not intend for us to become sinners, then why did he create a tree of knowledge? If it were not so, then he would have simply not put it there. And that's where he put it of, for some reason. So the choice, and then secondly, that tree represents to you God's bridle on you. And that's where you're asking yourself, does God have the ability to restrain me, to put a bridle on me? You know, the moment Adam and Eve ate of that tree, what they lost was their authority. It went down the drain. 
Because in the kingdom, godly authority ends when the restraining principle protecting it is broken. And so sometimes we just break the restraints and smash right through them. And we let our choice override the restraint. Nothing makes it more clear or more fun to study in the Bible than Samson. is someone who had a bridle on him. And the angels put a restraining order on the hair of Samson that no matter how long it becomes, not to cut it. This was his one restraining principle. And the trait of that, that he was given the ability, you're going to have supernatural power over the Philistines all your life. Never a problem, as long as you don't cut your hair. The restraining principle upon his life was the only thing that he had was that hair showed that he would have supernatural strength. Well, then he meets Delilah and decided the girl was more important than the restraining order. It didn't happen in the beginning. That wasn't how he was looking at it. But I want to tell you something that I've noticed. There's a compulsive voice attached to your restraining order. That's what makes it hard. When Samson went to Gaza, notice this scripture. He saw a prostitute and she pleased him. So he went to be with her. Well, word went out. Samson has arrived. Samson's with the prostitute. They surrounded the prostitute's house and waited quietly for him at the city gate, thinking when morning comes, we'll strike him down. But Samson fooled him. He stayed with the prostitute only till midnight. Then he rose from his bed, and he took hold of the closed city gates, and he pulled them, and it says they were still barred together. They were still locked together. And the post that held them, Samson lifted the two gates, the lock, and the post. And so here this giant of a supernatural strength. And I'll tell you the one thing that someone pointed out to me. Never in the Bible does it say Samson was large. I picture him massive, but it doesn't say it. That might have been what caused the confusion of why is he strong. They could have said, well, the strength is in the biceps. But maybe he was a normal-sized guy. We don't know. So picture it however you may, but this massive strength picked up the gates and carried them. It doesn't say he, <laughs> this was his restraining order. Samson had issues with women. Yeah, he did. He might have been a strong man, but he was very weak when it came to the, the foreign females. His first wife was disastrous. She cried the whole honeymoon. He ended up a divorced man, and his best friend got her, and his life was wrecked with women ever since. But he was always in some affair. He would always be found in the certain red light district of the city. Now, it's shocking that that wasn't his restraining order. Yet even when he was coming straight out of a brothel, the Philistines would try and attack him, and he destroys them as if it was nothing but a game. But after this, he fell in love with Delilah. It's that thing I said. It's when it's not just a prostitute, but she has a name. That's when you can tell a man's in love. It's not just girls, 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 Elvis. But she has a name. And the ruler of the Philistines came to her with a plan. And this is where I'm saying that the voice is compulsive that's attached to your restraining order. You can almost know this is your restraining order because of how the voice barks at you. The Philistine ruler said, if you can charm him into giving your secret of his great strength, then we'll overpower and capture him, and each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, I want you to notice the magnitude of this and the pettiness. Judas sold out for 30. Samson was worth 1,100. Delilah agreed. 
Delilah starts her, her games with him, her charm. What makes you so strong? How could anyone bind you and control you? Samson, if you were to bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not dried, I would be weak and I'd be no different than any other man. It seems as though Samson is toying with Delilah. These Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven bowstrings and they said, do it. Do as he says. As Samson slept, she bound him. When the warriors had taken their places in the inner chamber, Delilah called out to him, Wake up, wake up, the Philistines are upon you, they're attacking. But he snaps the bowstrings, the way the thread snaps when touched by flame, and he beat up all his attackers. One man, da-da-da-da-da, he attacks him. So the secret of his strength remained hidden. You're making fun of me now, Delilah goes. You haven't told me the truth. Oh, Samson, please tell me, how do you do it? What could take away your strength? And he said, if you were buying me with new ropes that have never been used, I will be weak and I'll be no different than any other man you've known. So using new ropes, Delilah bound Samson while he slept. And when the warriors had taken their places in the inner chamber, Delilah calls out to him, wake up, wake up. The Philistines are attacking. But he snapped off the ropes like a thread, fended off the attackers, and so the secret of his strength remained hidden. Delilah to Samson, you're making fun of me. You haven't told me the truth. What are you doing? Please tell me, how can I bind away your strength? If you were to weave my seven locks, do you see where he's getting closer to the truth? If you would take my hair and you would weave it into a loom and make it tight with a pen, it would make me weak. I'd be as any other man. So while he slept, Delilah wove his locks into the loom and tightened it with the weaver's comb. And when the warriors had taken their places in the chamber, she calls out, wake up. The Philistines are attacking, but Samson woke up easily, pulled the comb from the loom, his hair from the web, and he beat up all the attackers. So the secret of his strength remained hidden. Then she uses the thing that women are notorious to use. The thing that you must not love me. I don't know why it happens this way, but really Samson should have been asking the question, I don't think you love me. I mean, each time we go through this, I keep having ninjas come out with knives, you know. (laughs) But somehow, when your heart is in the game, you're falling for the fact that she's using the love question on you. You don't love me. Your actions are proving you don't love me. Your heart is somewhere else, Samson. Three times now you've lied to me, and you haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Now, this is the voice of the enemy of Judges 1660. She continued to ask him day after day, day after day after day. The nagging, nagging, filibustering. That's how you wear him down. Finally, he grew tired of her. Nagging, nagging, nagging. So tired he thought he couldn't hear her anymore. And so Samson tells her the truth. And he says, I've been a Nazarite, committed to God since my birth. My hair has never been cut. If my head was shaved, my strength would vanish. I'd be weak, and I'd be no different than any other man. You know, sometimes we play with our convictions. I'm looking at John to see if it's the secret of his strength. Delilah at last saw that he was telling her the truth. And again, she did it again. She said, this time I think he's told me the whole secret. They came. They promised to pay her for betraying him. She helped Samson fall asleep in her lap. She called in the men. They shaved off his seven locks, and immediately his strength left him. And this time she called to him, Samson, wake up, wake up. 
God has something tied to the authority and the calling you have on this earth. And Satan has something tied to it. And he ties a compulsive, nagging, wear you out, make you grow tired voice connected to what he wants you to break. So he told her the secret of why he was supernaturally used by God. You know what she did? She got it out of him and she called for reinforcements. They cut his hair, they mutilated him, and he became a public spectacle. And that's what the devil wants, is to ridicule the fact that you believe God and make it look like you are a complete hypocrite. Men have fallen. Good men. Women have fallen. And this is how it takes place. Because they broke the restraining principle God put upon the authority. And notice what takes place here. Samson jumped up. When Samson jumped up, this is what took place. His strength was gone. And Samson woke up and he thought he would shake himself free as he had always done before. He did not know that the spirit of the eternal God had left him. You talk about a scary scripture. He jumped up thinking with a bald head that he was the same powerful man that he had always been. And he didn't know he was now just like any man. Samson sees himself as so strong he thinks no one can handle him. But Delilah outwits Samson. And guess what? Delilah gets a bridle on Samson. She puts it on him. And when they broke his restraint, they abused him. And when they seized him, they held him. And these are the most horrible words. But they took their spears and they gouged out his eyes. You know, he hadn't seen clearly. And now it's worse. And so when they bound him with the bronze chains, then they put him to work grinding. And like a mule, he went around and around and around, year after year. And you know he had plenty of time to think about what went down wrong. He had plenty of time to review what happened between him and, and Delilah. And that bridle that she got on him literally placed him as a captive. And he truly was captive in a bridle. And that's what the enemy tries to do to the precious anointing of God on your life. He tries to publicly make a spectacle of us. He tries to ruin us. One restraint not obeyed. It opens up the door of hell coming against us. You know, I had tried using the words forbidden territory. We used the words of maybe we should put a fence law around it. You know, Eve, don't eat it, but let's not touch it either. Especially let's not shine the apple that we're not supposed to eat. On this with Delilah, I'm looking at the fence law, and I'm saying it really doesn't say don't tell anyone your secret, does it? It didn't say you shall never tell anyone where your strength comes from. It just said don't cut your hair. So she seduces him, and that's how it goes down. Is telling the secret set him up for seduction. Did Samson have to keep it secret? It doesn't make that a requirement. But you've got to realize when you're not with a believer, when you're sleeping with the enemy, sometimes your church youth group's the worst, that it goes down wrong here. And even though the secret was out, he still laid his head in her lap. And 
This is where it happens. That snake that says, look at the fruit, look at the fruit, that constant pointing it out with Adam and Eve, with Samson, it's like a personal attention giver. Where's the hair? Give me the secret. I've got to know it. It's like a town crier. And I realized when I was looking out at the ranch of all the trees that it had not been a problem until the snake was tied to the tree. Till there became like what I'd call a personal coach of the devil. The snake knew what the restraint was. And we look over and see so much goodness and it doesn't bother us. But what draws our attention to it is that, what I'm going to call him, that pointer outer. That snake that says, look at this, look at this. That highlighting something. That look at what you're lacking. And that was the question I want to ask you right now. Where is that personal coach in your life? That keeps pointing, saying, come on, this, this. What's your secret? What are you lacking? What do you want? It's that that caused them to eat the fruit. It was the fact that there was a voice connected to it. It's the fact that the snake's voice connected. It's the fact that Delilah's voice connected to it. Do you have that voice going on in your head right now? Because that's the voice of seduction. One very open one very solid, one very sneaky. There's something highlighting the very thing that will cause your anointing, your authority, all that divine restraint on your life to snap. I heard this story and I never forgot it. There was a hotel and you paid a lot of money to be in this hotel and be on the seashore where you could fish. I mean, people were going down to the seashore and fishing. They'd get on the pier and they'd fish. And it was the best spot. And they never had any problems with this hotel and the fishing until one day they put up a sign. And they put up this sign that said, no fishing from off the balcony of your hotel. Do you want to guess what happened? The sign enticed something in everyone. From then on, they had never had one case of someone fishing off the balcony until the sign was put up. And then they couldn't stop it. Everybody wanted to fish off the balcony. Why not fish off the seashore? Why not fish off the pier? It's much better. But there's something about that personal enticement of seeing a sign telling you not to do it. And I never forgot this. That it's like the devil puts up a sign, no fishing from here. And it looks so good. Why does it say that stolen bread is sweeter? You know, it's Romans 6.20 where Paul says, I do what I don't want to do. It's the sign put on it. So with our calling comes a set of convictions with the foretelling of our birth. Be it Samson, be it John the Baptist, those convictions And God puts up a divine restraint, an invisible bridle, to tell us yes and no. Because he wants that yes and no in our life so that our circumstances don't dictate it. Someone says your stance in your circumference, which surrounds us, encircles us. But what it takes is your stance, the strength. Should we call it your personal inner strength? So don't take your stance out of your circumstance. When God puts a divine restraint on us, an invisible bridle, and he gives you restraint, he's opening you up for your calling and your authority. But, alas, this is where we end. 
with the broken restraining orders. But we serve a God of redemption. And though it took him time and many covenants, we did have a second Adam come. And though Samson grinded away his life with his eyes gouged out, there came a time that his hair grew back. And when his hair grew back, his anointing came back on him. The redemption. So as you look at the beginning of man, and God redid it with the second Adam, Jesus, you see Samson get a chance to do more at the end of his life than he had done in the beginning. Then your job is the same. Sometimes your job is to save a soul from straying, to keep a sheep from backsliding. I had a friend at college, and she knew what I was called, what my convictions. And I remember everybody was doing all that they do in college, but she just reached over, and she removed anything in front of me because there's people that are assigned to your life to help you live up to what you believe, to help you make your convictions. And so that's where I would say, just like God has come on the scene to bring us to a place that we can live up to what we believe, that's our calling between each other, to help you live that best life of what God has put you on this earth to do with both your authority in the natural order and also your authority in the spiritual. And so that is my thought on God giving restraining orders from heaven. And in 48 hours, a call comes. <laughs> right on time. She timed that one perfectly. I'll have to give her her 10 bucks. <laughs>